spoke last time about Russia speaking, you know, Putin speaking very confidently in the midst of this crisis. And it, it raises the question of what the balance sheet is on Russia's position in the world. What is its actual power in the world? Is it speaking from a point of confidence in a realistic manner? And when, when I ask that, I mean, does it actually have the military capability to to confidently, say, invade and get its demands met? So I think you know, we might we might want to start there. Uh, I think tonight you wanted to talk about its military sophistication, technology that's been developed and revamped since 2008. But let's start there. What's the balance sheet right now? What What is Russia's position in the world? Why do you think it is speaking so confidently? Well, the first thing that's changed since, um, I'd say, a year ago um, is the development of a strategic uh, partnership between China and Russia. So Russia feels like it has China at its back, has its support. It has the um, economic coupling with a major industrial power, the largest economy in the world, that it knows that it can um, now rely on to purchase its most important export, oil and gas, if sanctions, if these nuclear sanctions, as um, the U.S. State Department has described them, are um, enforced, and that it can, it will, with although through plenty of pain, transfer over towards a Asian direction in the development of its economy. Mm-hmm. So that puts it in a position of greater strength. It also has developed, as you mentioned, a bunch of new weapon systems, um, hypersonic missiles, a few air uh, missile defense systems that are pretty much state of the art, although it's pretty likely that the United States is on its way to easily matching these new weapons. But those two things, those two, you know, basically um, new, uh, you could say dynamics or new power positions that Russia has is making it, giving it a much bolder um, sort of tone in the way it addresses the United States. And it feels that now that the United States has declared that it's going to be drawing, putting all of its attention in um, the South China Sea, now is the time to get concessions out of the U.S., when it would rather deal with this problem as quickly as possible. It also has, you know, a, because it's on its own borders, it has, it'll be drawing from, you know, domestic lines, supply lines, um, or internal supply lines. And it has, you know, a, a, you know, it is a great power. It knows that it, um, can easily defeat Ukrainian forces and mm-hmm. if need be all the types of support they would get from, from the West. Now, they most, I can't imagine why they would want to actually invade Ukraine and then put themselves through the kind of hornet's nest of something like Afghanistan on their own borders where they'd have a, be fighting an insurgency that's being supplied by the West with its stinger missiles and, um, and, uh, you know, anti-tank missiles and other types of defensive, mis- other types of defensive weapons that the West has already provided it with. Mm-hmm. Instead, it seems more likely to me that they would, um, they would um, annex and attach um, the Donbass and provide citizenship for all of the inhabitants there and maintain control of Crimea while the regime in Ukraine sort of reels in in sort of chaos as they um, all that chest pumping has um, reduced the has, has created a reduction in their own territory. And that is what I really think is at stake in all of the um, tough talk from the suggestion of aggression from Russia. It, it is also possible that they would just decapitate the regime in, in Ukraine as a signal for, as a signal to the rest of the country that they, they ought not to elect a government that is um, overtly hostile to Russia and that will seek the support and, um, uh, you know, funding and um, provisioning of the Western powers. But I can't really imagine them actually invading Ukraine. But so that's to answer your, your first question. But, you know, I think um, all of these things bear on Russia's negotiating position, the way Russia is approaching how to draw concessions out of out of the U.S. and NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be, you know, mentioned that they, they drafted these two different um, uh, sort of treaty provisions with one, two, three, four eight articles in each to sort of basically aim, aim for the moon, you could say, because a lot of the provisions um, kind of demand a drawback of defensive postures from the West 
that have existed for decades. Right. And it seems to me that that's a, that's a negotiating tactic in order to basically demand things very high and then through negotiations work your way down. But some of them are, yes, demand that neither Ukraine nor Georgia will, will join NATO. Those two things seem a lot more possible. But some of the other concessions they asked for is removal of military hardware from parts of Eastern Europe, an end of, and also an end of, um, you know, war games and training within Eastern Europe. And part of that training too is to cease to, um, you know, educate and train military in how to use nuclear arsenal and, um, and, um, nuclear weapons. Right. And, and of course, that's a big part of degrading the military capability of Eastern European countries, which would be a part of that. I doubt they'll concede to those things, but the real thing at stake is, um, the concession of admitting that Ukraine and Georgia will not become a part of NATO. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I, I find that these are, you know, these demands are pretty, I mean, uh, they're defensible. They, I mean, they would all be, I mean, from the standpoint of a, you know, a, a Marxist position with respect to U.S. imperialism and, you know, NATO aggression, these are all defensible demands that Russia is making. I mean, it's obviously in the service of Putin trying to become a regional hegemon on his own terms, and we, we, we don't lend any kind of political support to Putin, obviously, or his regime. But as far as, uh, you know, a victory on, on Russia's part would go, if it, if it led... If if a Russian you know if, if Russia's demands were met here, I think it would tip the balance in favor of that multipolar world that we've discussed before as an alternative to extra regional hegemony on the part of the U.S. So that would be I mean that would be good for the world, uh, you know for for security uh, I think the world over. So as you mentioned before, I mean the the way that the American media is covering it is that it's the the way American exceptionalist depictions of Putin is to deny entirely that. Putin should have any zone or any um, sphere of influence. So the, even they, they want to deny even he should have a near abroad at which a, Russia, a great power, shouldn't even demand that a, bo- a major bordering state that they have a long history with, in which you know it's been a part of Russia for most of its modern history, um, and and that's of course a tumultuous history, um, but that they shouldn't have a an interest in that regime not being totally um, against them or having an ill disposition towards them. Uh, well, okay, so I think you've laid out well what the, what's at stake here and what, what's contained in those draft treaties. But, but I still want to talk a little bit more about Russia's position in the world. It seems, I mean, as an outsider, and, and you know, we've studied this you know, using secondhand sources, the, the wind seems to be in Putin's sails a bit. I mean, there were some successes in Syria. The U.S. didn't get what it wanted exactly there. It learned a lot from those engagements in Syria, it was able to use some of the technology that, um, you know, the, the RMA that was that was forced upon them after the Georgia affair in 2008, which we'll talk about a little more, seems like they learned a lot through Syria. The The situation in, in Nagorno-Karabakh over the last summer, or actually was that 2020 already? Jesus. Um, yeah. I was at, that was, I mean, yeah, so it's like a year ago now, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the- Russia is obviously stepping onto the world stage in a way that I think Putin can can say has been successful and has actually been, you know, it's, it's, it's a credit to his regime in some sense. Uh, at least this is the way that he wants to uh, propagate this rhetorically. And, no. and I think there's some truth to it. So, you know, how much of that is actually, you know, are these, are these small affairs or do you think of this as, you know, this is really Russia trying to enter the world stage again as a superpower and nuclear peer competitor to the United States? Well, I think, you know, Russia's always been on the world stage. Um, I can't imagine a time in my adult life in which Putin wasn't, um, in some sense, I mean, you know, I, I, if I was in Russia, I probably wouldn't, well, I might, I might, I can imagine voting for him in this context, actually. But um, I, um, I always thought of him as a kind of premier statesman, right? Um, since I was, since what? 2000 since well it's not hard when you when you're when you're statesmen of your own country you know they're, they they don't read a fucking single goddamn thing but then you can read yeah. you know, <laughs> something that putin publishes in 
you know, various American like a, press about, you know, the, the depth of his historical knowledge. I mean, yeah. even if he's not writing this stuff entirely, you can tell that he has a background yeah. and he speaks to this very well publicly. But I mean, yeah. So, you know, next to Joe Biden, he seems like a yeah. philosopher next, king. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, so that's not um, saying much, but I but I hear what you're saying. No, but no, no. So to your point, is it is this is this a major like kind of salvo or a major um, you know new era, a new phase in Russia's history in which they're going to become a lot more aggressive? I don't really think so. I think they're trying to hold on. I think they're trying to give themselves breathing room for another you know decade while they're able to try to deal with a number of internal problems that are necessary to deal with, so that they don't become assailed as the U.S. and Europe basically kind of play a kind of uh, uh, a war of attrition mm-hmm. um, and wait for their demographic decline to take hold and some of the um, and the whole and the effect of the you know very tough sanctions that the West is expecting to, to place on them. But as yeah, we were talking yeah. about before, I mean the point the position that you know I think you and I have is that Russia is actually coming from a much tougher position and they've prepared themselves for sanctions and the West has kind of deluded itself into thinking that the sanctions are going to be are going to be so effective. Um, not only have they been dealing with this for a decade or not a decade, they've been dealing with very tough sanctions since 2014 since you know both Syria and, and um, Ukraine since the um, acquisition or annexation of Crimea. But they've also reoriented their economy. They've, they've basically, you know, increased their, you know, the war chest and, um, you know, accumulated a ton of foreign currency reserves, 600 billion to the order of 600 billion. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they have become the, the world's largest grain producer. And the, and this is also the most, a very important point from the short to near term. Any movement against Russia is going to ne- very negatively affect the European energy market. Now, yeah. it's perhaps thought that the United States can accommodate with shale and natural gas um, to pick up the slack, but I can't imagine that can be done um, in the short term to meet a sufficient amount. So then that means if there if there is a kind of a crisis and you know, and the United States has to bring very tough sanctions that basically cut off Russia entirely from Western capital markets and cut them off from the SWIFT system, that will be very deleterious for the European economy too. And so when you have yeah. when you're when you're you're hitting the largest grain producer and gas and natural gas and oil to um, source for um, Europe and in the case of grain for the world, what effect does that have on Inflation it has a pretty horrible effect on it, right? And then so then you run this risk of having a kind of near-term crisis in the countries that you're supposed to be protecting with this business. Yeah, these are all reasons why Russia has a stronger hand than most most Westerners assume. When you talk to most, maybe most of our friends, and they would then they would probably would have assumed. You you read that piece? I think that was in uh, was it Foreign Affairs: The Myth of Russian Decline. Why Ma- Moscow yeah. will be a persistent power, and I think that guy that, Michael so Kaufman is great, by the way. Yeah, I, I read that, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, apart from all the stuff about uh, the United States needs to take Russia seriously as a real threat yeah. and not get lost in the Chinese affair and focus on Russia. I mean, th- mm-hmm. these are all you know, these are mouthpieces for U.S. Yeah. imperialism and strategic okay. thinking, obviously. But I, I would just push back a little bit on this idea that they're you know Moscow is just trying to hang on for another ten years. Everything points on to a real strategic kind of you know uh, you know grand strategy in the part of Russia to do more than just hang on, especially for Putin and his and his cronies, right? I mean, they're they, like I, I hinted at coming out of the two thousand eight Georgian War. Uh, when you know the, the the circumstances are still unclear, did Georgia invade uh, South Ossetia or did Russia make the first moves? Whatever it was, Russia came in and slapped down American-backed Georgian forces, and it looked like a pretty clear victory on the part of Russian forces supporting an autonomous, um, you know, um, society, an autonomous uh, republic. I guess yeah. it's the Autonomous Republic of South Ossetia now. It hasn't been recognized by many parts of the world. I think Venezuela, Russia, Syria, a few others, maybe Turkey. But in any case, coming out of that, we learned a lot about Russians, uh, you know, Russia's military um, deficiencies. And the Russian military went back to the drawing board and they did a, you know, they started to revisit 
a number of problems uh, along the lines of communication. You can speak to this way better than I can. But I heard something about, you know, on the ground, there were generals who were using their personal cell phones to try to get in touch with, you know, command lines. And it's just like, holy shit, this is this is like medieval in comparison to what you would find in the most advanced militaries around the world, well, namely the United States. So it was a clear cut victory in terms of, you know, uh, you know, backing down American backed forces in Georgia. But on the other hand, Russia wasn't just going to rest on its laurels there. They had to go back to the drawing board on its military capabilities. And there was really, a, you know, a, a swift uh, modernization you know, process that took place after 2008 that Russia has subsequently been able to put to the test in places like Syria. And now I think it's it's really, uh, you know, if you, look at, if you look at the balance sheet, if you look at the right. balance sheet, right, in the Ukraine even um, – this is not just a. This is not a power that just wants to hang around for another ten years. This is a huge amount of investment in in what looks like you know the promise for, uh, or at least the you know investment for uh, securing its strategy much farther down the line, potentially mm-hmm. as a multipolar counter hegemonic force to the U.S. Um, yeah, I, so, I, I mean, I I um I just I just would um qualify how I said that before. I just I meant to say. Um, to hold on for another ten years, they're they're not, they're not going to try to advance territorially. I don't think in any any near term. I I don't know. I, I mean, just, it, it's it's interesting to me. I, I I mean Kiev. If you talk to people in Kiev, I mean again the same article. The Times had gone around with a reporter asking people about you know what are you doing um, right now in terms of the you know the potential invasion and you know you look at Kiev on a map and you look at where the real stakes are in the east on the border with russia i mean these are you know it's they're not close i mean and where where you know donbass sits is much farther away from kiev than it would ever be an issue for people in kiev yet churches are turning into bomb shelters and you know there there are a number of places being set up now that the government is communicating hey if there's an invasion this is where you go so i think it's actually on people's minds that this is a real possibility I, I just mean territorially. I think there is. I mean, especially in places like the Donbass, there. This is not territorial expansion so much as annexing, uh, you know, parts of the Ukraine that have a long cultural and linguistic history connected to Russia. And I think there's just a kind of returning to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a a, you know, righting historical wrongs in a sense. The you know it's funny you, you bring up this you know the longer history of this I I'm reminded of um, Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations and there's a you know, chapter about how the after um, the breakdown of the Soviet Union the um, you know basically the historical task of um, NATO and Europe will be to have a proper orientation towards many of these territories which are split down the middle in terms of you know, orientations towards Western Europe versus those are oriented towards orthodoxy. Now, for the way we've mostly been talking about this, and I, I generally think this is a better way to talk about it than Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, but one must recognize the continuities, that the, the you know, Western part of, say, of Ukraine, you know, Romania, or Belarus, other countries, you know, have more Western-facing population, have, you know, Parts of their populations are more Western-facing, and parts are more uh, sympathetic to orthodoxy, and that often plays out in terms of being more open towards, um, at least at the immediate end of the Cold War, to you know Western democracy and free markets, and the the rest was towards you know a kind of Eastern European or a kind of Russian kind of clientelist right. and you know culturally conservative and orthodox formation. This pro this issue in Ukraine. Ukraine's fault line in this regard was always extremely pronounced and it had been going back and forth for, you know, 20 years after the, you know, fall of the Soviet Union and, you know, these color revolutions and their aftermath basically ping-ponged pro-Russian and pro-Western rulers at a near deadlock. I mean, most of those, most of those um, elections with all of the corruption and all of the clientelism involved that's part of Ukraine, which we should add is like basically the most corrupt country in, in mm-hmm. Europe. And it's for, by most measures more corrupt than Russia, which obviously is a difficult thing to measure and stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the um, point simply is that there's been a kind of uh, 
there had been a deadlock in Ukrainian society politically, and um, the those who chose who have chosen elected to join Russia, both in the Donbass and Crimea, those are electorates that had so consistently voted for um, pro-Russian candidates that it seems it just stands in the face of all of the way that that Westerners dismiss. Those oh, elections yeah. as being totally illegitimate when they totally map on to the way that people had voted before in terms of the types of presidents who, who had been elected from those areas. This is a key issue of like, this is the way in which the United States is basically manipulating and taking advantage of a kind of split country and riling a hornet's nest right on the borders of Russia. And that's the real, you could say, strategic play that's going on is that the United States does not and is not going to go to nuclear war in order to defend Ukraine. That's obvious, right? I mean, to anybody who's thinking, I think it would rather ruin Ukraine to make Russia look horrible and justify excluding it entirely from the international community and wait it out and wait out the damage that's done to its economy and society rather than make, give concessions. That's really what's at stake. Is the United States going to make a concession for long-term peace over this or force Russia's hand to do something that is going to um, allow it to exclude it from the, from the international community? You know, it's, it's interesting to me the way you're framing this now when we've talked offline about this. I mean, you, you know, you'll text me every once in a while, a little bit of behind the scenes of how Mario talks about this stuff. You get really catastrophic and you're like, oh, there, there's going to be a war. There's definitely going to be a war. And now the way you definitely, I say, oh, I mean, yeah, okay, more than ever, I think there there could be like that kind of stuff, right? Don't I say that? Uh, Yeah, 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 sure. All right, I'll have to post your text on on the site. But uh, anyway, I mean, the way you're framing it now is is you seem you seem to think that it's unlikely that there may be a diplomatic solution to this. I was just cat. I mean, I just think that the 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 stakes are less war between the U.S. and Russia, and more a kind of contained proxy war that allows the United States to use Ukraine as a justification for excluding Russia. So create creates such a chaotic situation that it, it validates every every myth that they've fabricated about Russia being an expansionist territorial land grabbing power. Let let the situation go to hell so that it can then justify cutting them out from the world economy, at least the access to the to Western Europe. Exactly. Yeah. Now, there's a credibility issue at stake there because everybody knows that the United States has been assisting Ukraine and um, sort of egging it on, providing it with arms. And so even if it doesn't come to the a dire issue of whether or not, you know, of the of United States, of American or Western NATO-backed forces being attacked, you know, incidentally or something like that, and then the United States having to retaliate, it it still is a credibility issue that the, the state that you've been <laughs> – supplying arms to and supporting and making the sort of um, platform from which you would assail Russia with all these um, aspersions and stuff. And uh, that that would be a state that you just let fall apart. Then what does that look to allies? How does that look to um, other countries that the United States is trying to get on board to take on China? Yeah. Yeah. So there is exactly. still kind of a credibility issue there too. Well, I mean, what what I was going to say is, I mean, regardless of what we say, you know, regardless of what happens here, whether there's, you know, there's a war, or there's, you know, more of a localized kind of proxy war in, you know, the southeast and the Donbass region, or if it's a full on invasion, what what I think is undeniable is that the United States and NATO has they've pushed Russia to a point where its military investment is only going to go it's only going to get larger i mean putin is obviously going to use this to rally uh you know national fervor around it's going to be justification for expanding the military further investing in the military i think it already invests something like 200 billion dollars a year which is peanuts compared to the us but still i mean uh we're going to talk about this now but the the trajectory of the military is towards technological innovation and a full, full-on reform that that they want to put to the test, and I think will, in ultimately make them stronger uh, in their position in the world. You know, the interstate system. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, yeah, so before we talk about that that sort of um, current military um, posture, let's talk about um, the lessons learned from two thousand and eight in Georgia. 
in that moment before George W. Bush looked in Putin's soul. And then later on, Joe Biden would have an opportunity to say, I look in your soul and you don't have one. <laughs> Can you imagine that this is what these people say to the American people is like the stuff they how they talk tough, how they talk truth. Yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. dumb. Yeah, it's pretty lame. I mean, I, I saw I saw Putin with his shirt off riding a bear. Was he riding a bear? Wrestling with a no, no, no. He it wasn't actually writing. <laughs> there was, there no, was, there were memes about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he maybe fuck up that that tub tub Peyton motherfucking George Bush anytime. So I, this machismo stuff just doesn't fly. Yeah. So, but in regards to the you know um, Ukrainian you know society being split along you know Ukrainian and Russian speakers and you know, certain types of the, the disposition towards the West and East, the resolution that Putin and his foreign ministers have said is the basis for um, a stable peace going forward is the what is called the Normandy process or the Minsk Accords, which is basically an agreement between Russia, Germany, um, France, and Ukraine that the, the way forward is for the Ukrainian government itself to make an agreement with the Donbass regions of Lugansk and Donetsk to form a federal structure in which they can have cultural and um, certain forms of civic autonomy from the central government in Ukraine. But gradually that territory will remain under Ukrainian sovereignty. That's yes. the process that Russia is suggesting is the way forward and is insisting upon and is insisting that the United States force the Ukrainians to the, to the negotiating table in, you know, due form. That is not for the purpose of territorial, you know, aggrandizement. It's simply to maintain the cultural and you could say legal underpinnings for it to still have a sphere of influence, not to absorb its territory. Right. And yeah. I think that that entreaty for the, you know, West and especially the U.S. to, to insist that Russia meets those demands is entirely reasonable, and I think, given the display of uh, mili- the, the military posture that Russia has taken, we can expect that the U.S. will basically force its little puppet regime in Ukraine to follow suit or to or to meet those demands. Yeah, and in that sense, it seems a lot like the 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 Georgian War, except there would be broader recognition. I mean, there are already, as you said, in the Minsk Accords, this is an agreement between. The largest powers in Western Europe as well, whereas South Ossetia has not been recommend uh, has not been recognized um, by many countries outside of Russia's allies as an autonomous republic. Here, you would you would have broad recognition of the Donbass regions, those people's republics of Lugansk and Donetsk. So it would be that's the diplomatic solution you mentioned. Um, okay, so. 2008, right, brought Russian victory within, I don't know what, a matter of a week over the um, Georgians in the breakaway Republic of South Ossetia. But it revealed a whole bunch of weaknesses. What did it reveal, Tommy? Oh, well, I mean, there was a, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but the command structure was pretty poor. I mean, using personal cell phones to get in in touch with, uh, you know, various generals on the ground is probably not an optimal way to conduct a war but they won nonetheless and it became pretty clear that they had you know beyond their inability to secure communication links they just did not have decisive air superiority which seems to have been revamped quite thoroughly in subsequent years and then lastly which i'm reading about now it's it's certainly true is that they've revamped their they, they could not efficiently counter tank piercing munitions there in georgia so they, yeah. they took quite a hit there. But all of this, I mean, all of this has, has largely been rectified. I don't think the Russian military is without gaps or without, you know, deficiencies now. But those learnings have been taken quite seriously and, and applied subsequently in places like Syria, as I mentioned before. So mm-hmm. so take us through how those changes were implemented. So this, you know, these aspects of these weaknesses, right, suggest not only an inability in the, you know, in the Russian military for them to have adapted to aspects of the revolution in military affairs, which is basically, you know, it's obviously a kind of 
boosterist kind of jargon in the military that we probably first came in contact with with the United States in the Iraq War. But it mm-hmm. basically means um, networked warfare in which you're getting support from you're getting air support and oftentimes satellite imaging and um, intel that is used to support ground forces. And them working in unison is used to basically um, either you know, overwhelm an enemy or prepare forces for what's over the horizon and um, adapt accordingly before they have to be surprised by an ambush or by, or by the, um, you know, however provisioned the enemy is over that horizon. And so one thing they did was, as you're saying, improvement in communications. They bought, you know, that not only did they buy tons of new equipment such that now 58% of Russia's communication equipment is, you know, basically made in the last five years, but they also, they also dramatically professionalized the soldiers in, um, in service so that now a huge number of them are higher level soldiers paid who have, who have career salaries, which allows you to not only have a kind of ready command structure that can then train up people quickly. You know, it's like a, it's like if, if, you know, a quarter of your army is extremely well trained in a six month period, you can have a breakdown of, um, you can have a, um, a, a, a much more expanded military in which all, in which that quarter is able to be, you know, allocated to hold new platoons or, um, you know, divisions of, of, of soldiers who then train others. Right. Mm-hmm. So they've done that. They've also acquired um, a lot of practice in Syria where they had um, an opportunity to use increased amount of reconnaissance vehicles, you know, UAVs and, um, you know, adapt to urban warfare and um, use a kind of network situational awareness kind of mode of fighting in which you're, you know, using aerial bombardment in unison and in support of with ground infantry troops sweeping through cities and stuff. Some areas that still need improvement are um, it's a amphibious transport capabilities. It's, it's nothing like the United States in that regard because its Navy is not nearly as strong, nor does it have a lot of opportunities to land troops from water. But yeah, so we could just leave it at that. Yeah, I, th- I mean, what's interesting about all of this is that it didn't happen under the radar and it wasn't like when Russia started getting involved in Syria, it came as a big surprise. Oh, Jesus, the Russian military is that much more sophisticated now. Maybe in some ways it was a surprise. And, I think it know, was. Russia, I remember reading reports about people being surprised. Yeah, okay. Well, in any case, I mean, it's it's it became pretty clear quickly that Russia had made big strides in these areas. And um, what what started happening immediately wasn't like the U.S. slept on it is I guess what I'm trying to say, is they took note immediately of what happened in Georgia, and it was about that same time. You'll remember in Poland, they started to have these discussions about uh, ABM being located in Poland to wipe out Russia's air defenses. So I think a lot of that was squashed, and the Aegis ballistic missile, whatever it was, it was basically an anti-ballistic missile defense system, was dropped. But it's now, I think, being implemented in a phased approach. In any case, the United States had begun to respond to this, in very serious ways with its allies. And of course, now what you see is this sort of dialectic happening where Russia is becoming bolder, but the United States is pushing back, trying to get its allies involved to render these developments obsolete. And Russia comes back and they invest even more. So now you ha- you can see you know, on the balance sheet of the missile defenses, you have a nice list here in, in our notes, but you go one by one, each one of these developments in missile defenses, it's just becoming mm-hmm. more and more sophisticated to the point where Russia may not just be a nuclear peer competitor on, you know, the next peer competitor with the United States. It's, it's far behind in terms of weaponry, but maybe a step ahead in terms of whip, uh, missile defenses and technology. So, you know, on the along the lines part of that. How about along the lines? Good, Mario. <laughs> along the lines of the military modernization we were talking about, 
um, after 2008, which was, you know, really more infantry focused or at least integrating different um, military agencies with infantry, tanks and and um, foot soldiers, giving them a kind of, you know, kind of mixture of special forces and um, military intelligence kind of, um, you know, disposition. The Russian military also has um, adjusted itself towards um, a heavy um, influence or a heavy um, focus on procuring new weapons, modernizing old ones, and researching military technology. I think about half of Russia's defense budget is spent on those three things, not simply just producing tons of the same stuff, but dedicating a huge portion of its, of its defense budget on finding new weapon systems and, um, you know, bringing them to the field. So, and that's allowed them basically, basically to develop a bunch of next generation weapons from hypersonic missiles to these, um, directed energy weapons, which are usually for like lasers for disrupting satellites to electric warfare systems, to jamming up, um, enemies, um, communication lines to advanced submarines and um, these different types of um, air defense missiles that um, we'll talk about. So this, when you, can, when you consider that they're doing this under um, conditions of military spending that they can probably um, continue for um, a long period of time, this is one of the reasons why Russia is probably going to have a much greater staying power or it's going to be a persistent competitor with the United States. And so that, from here, we can talk about the um, some of these next generation weapons that they've developed. I can give a sense of why they're important. And right. it might just be helpful to start with the the first one that we have in our notes, which is called the Kinjal or dagger. That's the translation is dagger in English, which is a nuclear capable air launch ballistic missile. So yeah. a ballistic missile that has a nuclear warhead on it this is pretty scary shit. And the important mm-hmm. thing is that it can... It can travel at Mach 10, dude. It can travel at yeah, Mach 10. It can 10. travel at Mach 10 speed. So that's an important yeah. thing. Mach 10, what is that, about 10 times the speed of sound? Yes. That's insane. So you have a nuclear warhead moving at 10 times the speed of sound that's able to perform evasive maneuvers. So if right. something, you know, it, 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 an anti-missile air defense is coming at this thing, it can evade those defenses mm-hmm. yeah. at every stage of its flight path. So take off, cruising, as it descends. That's right. pretty fucking amazing, if you think about it. And the idea is that it should be able to overcome any known U.S. air or missile defense system, which you've, if you've been paying attention to, you would have heard a lot about after the Georgian War in 2008, when there were discussions about implementing these systems in Poland, the THAAD system, Aegis combat defense systems, all of this stuff that we continue to discuss today. So Russia has a bead on all these technologies Mm -hmm. and is developing missile capabilities so they can evade that. This is good news for Russian defense. And uh, as you said, good news for its lasting power. Mm -hmm. Um, Next thing we'll mention, I mean, just just to give you a sense also, I mean, there's one called the Sarmat. And I won't go through what it is exactly. It's a Merv-equipped super heavy ICBM or intercontinental ballistic missile. And that do you know? Merv do you know what Merv means? Do you know what Merv? Yeah. Means? So I don't know. I don't remember what the acronym is, but I no. think what it means is that it splits off into different um, trajectories. So yeah, it's warhead. Kind of, so. Yeah, I think of it as like a like a firework in a way, but those those individual pieces can move in, um, totally. you know, strategic ways, in, intentional ways. But the, the interesting thing about it to me is that, and you'll see this in China as well and other places, but um, it's named after a historic people, the, the totally. Sarmatians, who, who, who I think, you know, we're talking about this, uh, hounded the, the Roman people. Was it the Romans? Maybe yeah, throughout others, I think. what is now Eastern Probably Europe? the Persians too, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Persians as well. So there's, there's obviously some historical identification with this. And then the last one I'll mention is called Avant-Garde. The name is obvious, avant-garde, and it's a hypersonic glide vehicle. And a couple of things that are interesting about this, not only does it counter 
those anti-missile defense systems, as I mentioned with the Kajal or Dagger missile. It was tested back in 2016 and it reached its target successfully at 7,000 miles per hour. Also with evasive technology. So this shit is yeah. crazy. I mean, you really think about, I mean, we don't just read this because we want to nerd out on weaponry. It's, it can be fun. But I think having an understanding of where Russia sits in the world, you have to look at this stuff more specifically. Right? I mean, it's not yeah. like, you know, Russia is not this, you know, talking about the, the myth of Russian decline. If you look at its weaponry, this is obviously countered. And, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll link a couple of things in the description of the article, but uh, there are a number of YouTube videos out there that can show you how these things look, uh, how they operate, how they're made. Um, and, and I think having that level of specificity is important for um, countering some of these myths of, um, you know, Russia being, you know, on, on the, you know, against the ropes, as it were, in the face yeah, of the Or, or Russia simply being a gas station with, uh, with nukes, right? Yeah, who, who was that that said? Was that John that's, McCain that said that? That's John McCain, yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it's not just to, although it is interesting to nerd out on the specificities or the, the specifics of the of weapon capabilities and stuff, um, but the point is to draw lessons about about their force posture in relationship to diplomacy. What? Wh- how does the demonstration of what kinds of um, missile technology that Russia has translate to how they behave on the world stage and how, what kind of negotiating tactics they use and what kind of um, stance they take. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, to your point, um, these are next generation weapons that we can expect that the United States either already has or already has in development is just not yet capable of fielding. And as you were also pointing out, they are able to evade most of the weapon, uh, mil- missile defense systems, THAAD and Aegis. But there are some limitations to some of them. That, For example, the hypersonic missile, especially the hypersonic glide vehicle, what that does basically is skid across the top of the atmosphere, which allows it to, I think in many cases, circumnavigate the globe many, many times and strike you know, at a given point. At a given or at a given moment, when it when it um, when it's given instructions and targeting information to do so, and upon its reentry and on its downward trajectory, it's moving so fast that it creates this kind of like plasma ion sheath around it that mm-hmm. disrupts any radio um, or any um, communications with it, so that it's targeting information gets totally lost. So from the interim of this hypersonic glide vehicle going back down to reach its target, it loses track of what its target is. So therefore, you have a limitation. It means that it can maintain that in in its trajectory towards say a solid a um an immobile object, say a city or um some other some other type of target on land, right? But if it's targeting a ship or you know some other very mobile land-based target, it might have a, more, a harder time reaching it. Now, of course, if it's nuclear, if it's you know nuclear-capable missile, then most of these parameters are um, unimportant. But especially mm-hmm. in terms of anti-ship missiles, there's a big limitation on the on the um, hypersonic glide vehicles, right? Yeah, that, that, that's that's just that's just wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> and also according to my calculation. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, hold on! I I forgot to carry the one. Uh. Um, I mean, we could we could go on and on about these, you know, the latest technologies. And you want me to go on military. and on about the S five hundred, the S five fifty. You want exactly. me to go on about the, the Prometoy, about the Perisvet, about the Poseidon, about the fucking about the uh, the torpedo shaped robotic mini submarine that they can like, yeah, you know. You know, we, plant we can, on well, any coastline. Well, we can we can write about this stuff. We can put this on the site. But yeah, I, I think, I so think too, what we want listeners to take away from this is um, the idea that that Russia can control escalatory violence with these means. I mean, it's not just that they're balling out. They've got some serious capabilities now, and they've they're constantly learning and reinvesting. But yeah. that the control of escalatory violence is an important component of these defense systems. So tell us what that means. Where did you get this idea? Where where does that come from? To be honest, I actually got it from Obama. Obama? It was 
Obama was talking about uh, escalatory violence, that Russia can uh, has a monopoly on it in certain areas. Wow. No, wow. seriously. Bonus Obama he, impersonation. When, um, when asked about why they didn't um, push further in Ukraine in 2014, he basically said something to that effect. I think escalatory violence or, you know, control of the gradient of escalatory violence, something like that. It basically means that, you know, short of nuclear war, Russia is in the position to um, – trump or to neutralize all kinds of weapon systems that could be put in place to basically raise the stakes of involvement by the by the powers and so russia being able to use these different weapon systems can neutralize all of these other abilities of the air defense systems of nato but and, and clearly in ukraine which is a you know was kind of a rump state anyway but the, this demonstration, especially in these, these last few years of Russian procurement of next generation weapons, demonstrates that they would um, be able to maintain an advantage for, you know, in, in their vicinity before it would have to go to a kind of Armageddon scale exchange of nuclear weapons. That's what these weapon systems demonstrate. Even if, you know, the US would have some ultimate advantage, the stakes of it or, or the the repercussions of it would be just so devastating that it's not worth, it would not be worth going into a kind of tit for, uh, you know, a kind of salvo for salvo test of the wherewithal and uh, stamina of both of these powers. To me, that's terrifying because it seems like logically it escalates to the point of nuclear Armageddon faster because the the control over all of the interim solutions is now so tight because of these technologies that the only solution militarily would be one that is at the final conclusion which is nuclear warfare so is this an, is this not creating a more dangerous situation in the region um i think it yeah it is more dangerous but um it's a condition that makes it more dangerous for the the treaty formation and the and the um, system of states that's going up next to pushing up closer and closer to Russia itself. I mean, if Russia had totally um, um, dry, you know bent the knee and not developed these new weapon systems, they would simply have to totally acquiesce because the you know NATO would have a total advantage in terms of its ability to overpower its weakened defenses. It wouldn't have a counter offensive to those defenses, right? And um, basically, we would be talking a whole about a totally different sort of dynamic at the negotiating table between Russia and the West. But if you don't want your state to disappear, you don't want to become a satrap of the, of, uh, the Western alliance system, which basically is reneged on the the um, system of um, the security arrangements, which, you know, Putin kind of complains about was not met after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, then uh, you've got to, uh, you've got to arm yourself. Well, I think, I think you did a good job, Mario, contextualizing this for us in episode one and two here on what's more current events. So we didn't read a historical text or an IR book necessarily cover to cover as we usually do. But I think this, I hope, I hope anyway, this has been useful for listeners who have been paying attention to what's turning into an international crisis vis-a-vis -vis the United States and Russia. So what should we be paying attention to in the next few weeks and months ahead as this uh, heats up or, or potentially doesn't? I mean, what, we sh what should we be paying attention to as a, um, you know... Uh, as a common you know, peasant in front of the television waiting to know whether or not your, your world is going to be um, blown up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as, as though it hasn't already. Yeah, the first thing to pay attention to is the negotiations, which I believe are going to take place in Geneva between yeah. Russia, the U.S., then NATO, and then between Ukraine and the European Security Co Commission, which is you know a system of states and Russia and Ukraine. Well, at least in this uh -huh. for this meeting will be Ukraine. And I think that's going to be January 9th through the thirteenth or fourteenth. So a whole slew of meetings in which they'll probably uh, come to some sort of tentative agreement in which they will draw down tensions 
and establish the parameters for, you know, a longer term process for negotiating a security settlement in the area in which the major thing, the major sticking point for Russia will be non-absorption of Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. And then, a, you know, a kind of more um, fraught or more nebulous direction in meeting those other articles in um, Russia's, uh, you know, treaty suggestions. Well, I'll say just as, as a final word, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping for a diplomatic solution here. I, I don't cheer on one side or the other. Obviously, we take a side against um, these provocations by the United States, which have been, go you know, have been ongoing since, yeah. uh, you know, well before the, 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 the revolution, quote unquote, in the Ukraine in 2014, which is now staffed uh, Ukraine yeah. and anti, you know, rebel forces with a bunch of Nazis, literally. You know, obviously, we take a side against that. But on the other hand, we don't really want to cheer on Russia going to war to annex uh, the Donbass immediately. It's It just doesn't, it doesn't bode well for the region. But if push comes to shove, I mean, there's going to be a question of defending Russia against U.S.-backed forces in the region where mm -hmm. there are some historical wrongs that should be righted. So, you know, with that said, I mean, for me personally, I just want to say, you know, you know, cheers to a diplomatic solution coming out of this. I think it'll just kick the can down the road further. But until that happens, I mean, we just got to look out, pay attention to the news, and we'll have a lot more to say about this in the future. As we always say, if, if you have questions or you want to come on the show, talk to us about this stuff. You know, we, we definitely, we, we appreciate the support and engagement. So we want to hear from you. You know, what do we get right? What do we get wrong? Why do you hate us? Why do you love us? You know, give us some comments there on the uh, the old podcast and platforms what is uh, apple and such and uh <laughs> how's that negroni treating you yeah it's i'm getting deep now yeah well you don't drink that much you've become a lightweight this is my 10th beer dude you know i got havana syndrome so you know i've been having i've been having a few <laughs> oh, okay wow well wow. coming back to that joke great okay and that's full circle <laughs> cool well i guess i'm gonna pause it now yeah. <laughs>